Week one, fruit of the Spirit, love. So I'm going to give a little context in Galatians 5. Verse 16 of Galatians 5, Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, and that's why you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another and envying One another. Okay. I had to read context because this entire class is about the fruit of the Spirit, and the danger is that we would read the list of the virtues that will be the outcome of living by the Spirit, and instead of realizing that these are God's characteristics, that these are God's effects coming out of us, that we would turn this fruits of the Spirit list into a task that we think it's our job to produce. Because the whole point is that they are fruits or effects of living by the Spirit. They are not a list of things that you are meant to get busy producing. He's, the whole point he's making is he's got a, he, the Galatian church is a church that thinks that if we're rooted in rules, that we'll produce good fruit. And he's He's pulling his hair out to explain to them, if you get rooted in rules, you will actually get rooted in your power. Because, because anytime you come under law, you get in the weakness of the flesh. And, and he's pointing out, you know what the outcome's going to be? It's going to be bad. And so he lists off all the obvious effects of living by the flesh. But, what's his point? But if, if you both say no to rebellion, and say no to living under the law to embrace Jesus. If you live under grace, if you live under freedom, if you live by the Spirit, the outcome is going to be all these fruits of the Spirit that this whole class is about. So this is not a class where you get to work producing love, producing joy, producing peace. But it is a class where we want to investigate each of these fruits to see what it's like. To, to see what it, what, it, what it acts like, where it comes from, how it thinks, how it feels, how it believes. We do want to recognize the fruits we're either bearing or not bearing. And then instead of just trying to get busy faking it, put a bowl of plastic lemons in there. Oh, see, I got fruit. No, we want, to, we want to backtrack. And instead of getting busy faking it, we want to go back upstream to the root cause to the heart issue and say, am I living by the Spirit or not? Am I receiving the love of Jesus or not? 
am I, or am I putting myself in some way under a performance orientation and back under the law, which is putting me back in the weakness of the flesh? Is there something I'm not believing in in this full gospel that's causing me to somehow separate from grace and therefore put me in the flesh? How are we tracking so far? So the fruits of the Spirit, you don't make them. You don't do them. They're the outcome of living by the Spirit. And what is a life in the Spirit? But a life in grace. A life in the love of Jesus. A life in the affection of the Father that you don't earn and you don't deserve, but look what you got. You got it. It's yours. Now live in it. Receive it. And don't let anyone take you away from it. It's the whole point of Galatians. Don't let anyone take you away from this freedom you have in Christ. And don't let anyone fool you into thinking that your freedom means you're just free to live however you want, to indulge your flesh. No, the whole point was to get free of flesh. That was the point. That sin was the thing we wanted to come to Jesus to get free of. Why would we go back to that? Okay. Luke chapter 6 hits on this, the up, going upstream to the nature of the thing. Just list, I'll just read it to you. Luke chapter 6, 43 through 45. Jesus, these are red letters. No good tree bears bad fruit, and nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. You don't gather figs from thorns, and you don't gra- gather grapes from a bramble bush. The good person out of a good treasure of a heart produces good, And the evil person out of the evil treasury produces evil, for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So what is he saying? What is Jesus saying in this tree fruit image? Is he saying, well, that's just the way you are. You'll never be able to change because that's just who you just were... Your dad was a hothead. You were born with that nature. You're always going to just do what, you're in, what it's in your nature to do. Is that what he's saying? Well, it sounds like he's saying that, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like he's saying you can't act against your nature? Ah, so what hope is there for change? Work the thought out for me more than that. So what I hear you saying is, if the only nature that's in me is my earthly family, then that would be that way. But what if God does something to change my nature? What if we would not be born of flesh, but what if we would be born of the Spirit of God? What if we would make the tree good? Oh, that's definitely right. But I'm going to push some more things down here. What is, what is he not... Okay, what, what is he saying? For sure what he's saying is inward nature determines outward behavior. Right? Out of the heart comes the speech and the action. So when, you know, you got a kid and the kid's acting a fool and doing crazy dumb stuff, and then I say, oh, it's really sad, and the mom says to me, but he's just got such a good heart then I would say, well, that's the one thing I can know for a fact is definitely not true, based on Jesus' words. The one thing I do know for a fact, if his behavior is bad, is that his heart is rotten. 
I know, it's harsh, isn't it? That doesn't mean he doesn't have value. It, it doesn't mean he doesn't have potential. It doesn't mean he can't repent. It doesn't mean he can't change. It, does not mean, it doesn't mean he's not worth the blood of Jesus. But one thing we know for a fact is our outward behavior, he just takes the, we just make excuses. I wouldn't have yelled and thrown the whatever if you hadn't have provoked me. Liar. Right? We blame the circumstance. He says, ah, no. You squeeze the ketchup bottle, ketchup comes out because ketchup's what's in the bottle. And we go, no, no, no. The ketchup only came out because you squeezed me. And he's like... So inward nature determines outward actions is what Jesus is saying. Actions and words expose heart realities. Here's what he's not saying. What he's not saying is people can't change. That's what he's, that's, he's not saying people can't change. But what he is saying is inward realities determine outward behaviors. So you want to change outward behavior? What do you change? Inside. Inward realities. What, he's, what he is saying is the treasury of the heart determines everything. Which is what I'm saying the Galatians 5 thing is. Look, if you live by the Spirit... If you go to the root of intimacy with Jesus by grace, if you get down deep into the place of his affection for you and you live in that affection, you live in the freedom, no law over you, except his love for you is regulating you. you then you've gone all the way down to the treasury of the heart. Oh, hi. It's Jacob Truett wanting to be baptized. Love has both affection and action. Later at the end, I have some discussion questions for us to kind of contemplate. Oh, good, I wrote that on the board. I, I, I have to, you've got to remind me to write certain things on, like say, hey, you're not writing on the board, Tim. At some point, I'm going to ask you how you define love. Because, I mean, I'm not interested how Webster defines love. I'm interested how you define love. My argument is that love is both affection and action. I don't, that's not a definition. That's just saying it has to include both of those, whatever it is. And when we practice the right action, this is me answer, starting to try to answer the question, how do we change nature? How do we change the inward? When we practice the right action with an intention, I want to know you, I want to follow you, I want to, I want to walk with you, Jesus. I want to respond how you're calling me to respond. When we practice the right action with the right intention, then it's our heart turning the right direction, at least. Because a lot of people would say, love's just an action. And I'm like, so you can inwardly be full of resentments, but outwardly behave as though you're loving and call it love? Come on, we know better. But how do we get out of the resentment? And my thing is, you begin to practice kindness toward the person you dislike, despise, resent, hate. At least turn your heart the right direction with the intention to grow into love. And I, the things that we habitually turn our heart toward, treasure, pursue, value, that's how we develop the treasury of our heart. 
the thing that our attention is turned toward, the thing that our affection is turned toward over and over and over is how we store up good things in our hearts so that when, when it's squeezed, it's things that the Spirit of God has put in me that come out of me. It's, you can't expect to sow to you know, live by the flesh but bear the fruit of the Spirit. It just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. So formation... is a journey. It's a process. It's a journey. Eventually, as, at, like, as we walk with Jesus, as we are yielded to Him, as we walk with Him a while, we, when we start following Jesus, behaving, responding, following what He's saying does not come easily and it does not come naturally. But the goal of the transformation process is to get to the place where when, to get to the place where we are obeying Jesus easily and naturally. And if you don't think it's possible, your theology is broken. If you don't think it's possible, you don't understand grace. If you don't think it's possible, someone lied to you about the gospel, about the amount of transformation that is available in this life as we partner with it through thousands of little decisions to respond with grace, to respond to grace, to partner with Holy Spirit's grace. We can get to the place where when you squeeze the ketchup bottle, Jesus comes out. That's a bad mixing of metaphors, but you catch what I'm saying. We can get to the place where you love your enemies from the heart, easily and naturally, where the authentic thing coming out of you is the blessing of, toward your enemy. Not resentment, not unforgiveness, not retaliation. I was in the Reach house taking a shower in the morning, singing to the Lord, and my friend poured cold water on me, and I instantly yelled out cuss words at him. And then I had to apologize to him and the whole group of people at breakfast because at least the guys had, over, some of the guys at least had overheard me. I didn't mean to. I could come up with all kinds of excuses, couldn't I? Oh, you shouldn't have done that. You poor ice cold water on me. I was in the middle singing to Jesus. And what, what freaked me out the most, what made me feel the most ashamed was that I went from like right out of James. You remember the verse in James? It's not right, says James, for you to praise God and curse man with the same mouth. Come on, man. It was like, but that's, the, you know, have I progressed? God knows. But the goal is not me to outwardly just restrain myself. The goal is to so, so walk closely in obedience to the Holy Spirit that He is transforming the inward parts of me so that the automatic responses become easily and naturally to walk out exactly how Jesus did. I'm telling you, it's possible. It's normal. But don't freak out if for you right now, whole parts of the Christian life look almost impossible. That's normal. That's okay. You'll get there. We'll get there. We're getting there. And there's no shame along the way. There's no shame along the way. But half the point I'm trying to make here is don't turn the fruit into laws. Anybody else hate that squeaking? The focus is not on producing these things, but being aware of what we're producing and then going back to the root of intimacy with God, receiving His love, believing His truth, obeying His... Like, the, relationship! Rela 
They saw, they were astonished at the disciples, the power the disciples walked in. They, none of them were, none of them were like, they were fishermen. They, they were tax collectors. They were, come on guys, these were not good. These were not, they would have not gotten elected to the elder, elder team of, of their local synagogue if there had been one. These were like, they were not voted most likely to succeed, right? They might have been voted like weirdest dresser or like most likely to be on like the news in some sort of major scandal. But they were not voted like, and Jesus said, you, me, let's go. And the next thing you know, in the book of Acts, it says, who are these guys? These are not, these are ordinary, uneducated men. And they took note, what does it say? And they took note that they, come on, finish the, the thought. Had been with Jesus. I know I don't, it's like, come on, Tim, give me something better than just walking with, no, there is nothing more transformative, more powerful, more, more life-giving, more health-giving than not just eternal life, but the eternal life style of intimacy, daily intimacy, abiding, walking, listening to, depending on, trusting, talking much to, treasuring the words of Jesus. He produces the fruit in your life. He does this work. In fact, the crazy part is you get to repent of all the sin, but you don't get to take credit for any of the fruit. <laughs> well, that's not fair. No, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It takes the pressure off of you. It takes the pressure off. Because if, if you get to boast in it, you're also responsible for it. But you're not responsible. You're, you're not responsible. How do I say this the right way? You're responsible to put yourself in this position and yield but he's the one who does the heavy lifting. Take his yoke upon you. Boy, that's an interesting thing, being yoked next to him. Have you ever been yoked next to your daddy when he's working on a project? Little kid, come over here and help. You see how, you, you see how Annie helps me with projects? She puts her hand on my arm and takes credit for whatever work I'm doing. It's what she does. I'm, I'm, like, I'm not making that up. It's what she does. I'll be doing something with washing dishes or something, working outside, and she'll just grab my arm or grab the tool and then she, feel, she takes credit for whatever I'm doing. Come take my yoke upon you, says Jesus. He's in the yoke next to you. Who's doing the heavy lifting in this thing, guys? He says that his yoke for you is easy and light. Okay. Love is the main fruit of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3 says... And put on love, which binds all these, others virtues, the, all these other virtues together in perfect harmony. Binds means ties. And put on love, which ties all the rest of these virtues together in perfect harmony. Love is the attitude, disposition, reality, energy, whatever that you want to call it, out of which all other virtue flows. God is love. It's the, by the way, and God is love is deep theology. It's also 101 theology. Who is God? God is love. That's the first thing you should learn, right? It's the 101 theology, but it's also the 201, the 301. It's the 401, and it's your doctoral thesis. It doesn't get simpler than love, but it doesn't get deeper than love. In fact, love is so deep. Love is so profound Love is so all-encompassing. Love is so incisive. Love puts the razor-fine, sharp edge on any moral question. 
What is love doing here? What is love calling me to do here? Not just what is right, but what is love doing here? What is right, you can use what is, what is right, what is morally appropriate, what is biblical, is often an easier question with more excuses than the question of what would love have me do. And Paul later is going to say, well, Jesus says this when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says love. Paul says love is the summary and the essence of what all the commandments are about. Every command in the whole Bible is either a description of what love would never do or what love would always do. But since we are not love by nature, we need commands. But since God is love by nature, he never has to consult a rule book of how to live. Now, why do you think it is that if Jesus takes up residence inside of you, you're called to be dead to the law so that you can belong to another, Romans 7, and bear fruit for God? Maybe it's because if the one who needs no laws to be good, but just does what comes naturally because his only motivation is always love for everyone, if he dwells inside you and you're yielded to him, maybe it's because you already will do the moral and ethical thing without it being, you know, told you should. That as you're formed by his love, as you're shaped by his love, you'll begin to think by the logic of his love. And and I'm telling you, his love does not look logical to our flesh. But it does look logical to the renewed mind. Love your enemy does not look logical to your flesh. But love your enemy looks perfectly logical when you deeply comprehend the gospel. When you deeply comprehend the value God places on the one for whom Christ died. Including the ones who hung him there. Which means including the ones who want to hang you there. Me there. Don't forget to write on the board. Love is the main Holy Spirit fruit. We're told to put on the new self. We're told to put off the old self. The new self is the God nature we've been given in Jesus. The old self is the flesh nature we inherited from Adam, which, of course, was when our forefathers first began to follow the devil, who said, you should think about you first. Right? We actually had the demonic nature replicated in us in the fall. He's an expert at right and wrong. But it does no good. So the tree of the knowledge of, evil, uh, knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is what a lot of people think the goal of church going is. I'm going to go to church. They're going to tell me what's right and wrong about everything. What's the right way to do this? What's the right way to do that? What's the right way to train the child? What's the right way to run your marriage? What's the right way to do this, that? Becoming experts of a God we hardly know. More and more judgmental of self, spouse, pastor, others, friends, community, politicians, everything and everyone. Now we're experts at judging and impoverished when it comes to loving because we were rooted in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
And the whole point of salvation was to get us out of it. We came to church and learned it. I'm not suggesting that ethical instruction is bad. It's good. But I am suggest suggesting that any theological instruction, personal spiritual training that's devoid of the love of Jesus is literally demonic. It's why the old school Pentecostals talk about a religious spirit and a political spirit being the two main competitors for our soul with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fascinating? I've heard those old Pentecostals talking about that for years, and I still think they get it way better than I do, and I'm still not quite sure what they're talking about. I just know they're onto something. Uh, new self, old self. So which one's you? Which one is you? The Bible says the real you is the new you. And that when you sin, you are lying with your actions about who you are. So that when you find a believer sinning, one thing you can say as an exhortation is, you are so much more than this. This is not who you are. Or as I like to say in our family, this is not how Millers behave. Even though it is, but it shouldn't be. You catch what I'm saying? This is not how saints are called to behave because this is way below who you really are. Because the real you is the new you. Does that make sense? So our whole life is now a process of becoming who we really are already. I'm already righteous in Christ. I'm already love. I'm already perfect. I'm already complete. I'm already accepted. I'm already the treasure of God. I'm already the inheritance, the rich, glorious inheritance of God. The Bible says some crazy things about what I am, not what I will be, what I am. But now that I am that, now I'm learning to become what I am. Grace is actually making me what he's called me. Okay. Convince, it's an interesting, you said we have to convince ourselves. Romans 6.11 would say, reckon yourself. What does reckon yourself mean? What is the word reckon about? Reckon is like an accounting term. Check, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> reckon is like an accounting term. You're making an assessment and you're counting the thing. And Paul's saying, like, you actually are dead to sin and you are alive to God. Yep. 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 And I, for years, I've, you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. For years, I've heard Dan Moeller in my head yelling, why do you let that move you? Why do you let that move you? Don't you know who you are in Christ? Don't you know the hope you have in Christ? Why are you letting this shake you from this firm foundation? Man, that's big. That's big. Godly, what does godly mean? Godlike. Come on. Oh, that's a Q. Let's try a G. Is that a good G? My, for the dude who discipled me, he hated the way I made Gs. <laughs> it's like, is that a seven in that G? I don't understand. Godly means God-like. How do you... 
How are you going to... Isn't it weird what people get picky about? That's not how you make toast. That's not how you flush a toilet. That's not how you put a toothbrush away. That's, where's the lid to the toothpaste? That's not how you walk on carpet. That's not how you turn off your car. Godly means God-like. Um, we're supposed to see the perfections of God. You're not going to want to be like a God that you don't... Um, there's no shadow in him. But a lot of us think there are. And so people ask questions. They ask questions to me. They're like... Um, why am I called to forgive my enemies when God's just going to throw everyone in hell? Why am I called to forgive my enemies when God was so mad at me for my sin, he murdered his innocent son? Th th oh, those kinds of questions. And I'm like, well, first off, uh, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He wants everyone to be saved. And the only people who go to hell go to hell against God's will, right? By rejecting persistently his love, his love, his love. And secondly, he didn't murder his son. He didn't pour his wrath out on his son. He didn't punish his son. He didn't kill his son. You know what he did? He knew what, sin and, he knew what Satan's sin and death would do if he came in the flesh and he loved us enough to come anyway. We did it. Satan did it. Sin did it. And it hurt the Father when he did it. And it hurt the Holy Spirit when he did it. But if we have a vision of God as something less than perfectly, totally good, why would we want to be like that? How come God has to murder innocent people before he can forgive? You're, you're misunderstanding the cross. The cross is not God murdering his innocent son. The, God, the cross is God absorbing our sin, taking, because that's exactly what you do anytime you forgive someone. Anytime you forgive someone, you have to absorb the wrong done for atonement, for atonement. That's how it works. Or maybe I could put it another way, is anytime you eat to live, something has to die, even if it's a plant. And you go, well, algae's not alive. We could eat algae. And I'd be like, stop trying to ruin my metaphors. <laughs> and stop eating gross things like algae. <laughs> But godly means God-like. Love you, buddy. See ya. When I was at Rosedale, uh, the uh, African-American lady who was preaching the best sermon I ever heard, her husband came and led a song before she preached, and then he went out the side door because he was preaching across town, and as he was leaving, she said, preach good, baby. So, so clean good, baby. I had to time that story to get it before it. <laughs> well, clean good, baby. When I was at Rosedale as a student, I was walking down the road at our Bible college, and a while later, this lady came to me, and she said, you're a Miller boy. I was like, what? She said, yeah, I saw you walking this morning. You're a Miller boy. Which ones are you? You Nathans? You Ellis's? Who you? You Harold's? Which boy? I said, I'm Norm's. This is weird. How did you know? You walk. You walk like a miller. A woman who'd never met me in my life, I, she didn't even seem to know my dad, really. How weird is that? She recognized my family by my walk. 
How weird is it to be an angel? I'm serious. How weird is it to be an angel? And for millions of years, you've been knowing, you've been knowing God. And you look down and here's these little pink, skinny, hairless ape thing looking, walking around. And you go, that's got to be. No, it can't be. I'm telling you, it's the spitting image of him. No, that's blasphemous. But look at the walk. I'm telling you, that's my God. That's got to be his boy. And so Adam and Eve, it says in Genesis 5, I think, bore a son, Seth, in their image. What godly means godlike. How many times in your New Testament does it say, emulate the Father, forgive as you've been forgiven? Or check this one out with Jesus. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on evil and the good alike, and he sends his rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than anyone else? Don't even the Gentiles do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we heard the word perfect, and we all turned our brains off and said, Impossible, which is Japanese for impossible. And what does he mean? Perfect in what sense? Be complete in who you love, like your heavenly Father is. Bear the family likeness. Walk like your daddy. Don't be like Gentiles. This is interesting. You treat me good, I'll treat you good. We ain't got a problem, said every pagan everywhere. And apparently in my accent, also rednecks, apparently. But Christian rednecks love their enemies. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm a good candidate to be a redneck because I go outside for one hour and have a redneck. Love your enemies so that you may be children of your father. That is so, Okay. Godly means God-like. Let me read to you what your Heavenly Father is like. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant. God is not rude. God does not insist on His own way. God is not irritable. God is not resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears with all things. He believes in the midst of all things. He hopes in the midst of all things, he endures in all things. And God's love never ends. Now, what was I doing right there? You know what I was doing. I was taking 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Since I know that John says God is love, and 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love is like, what love always does and what love never does, I was being logical and saying, guys, is this how you think of your father? Your father's patient and kind. He never envies. He never boasts. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He's not rude. He does not insist on his own way. Do you need an upgrade in your theology? 
I'm Lord, I do what I want, no one can defy me. And then people put on their church sign, you think this is hot, you just wait, boy. And then I go, oh, that's a bad look. He does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable. That's a, I am. So I guess what does that mean? I need more love. God never rejoices at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. He bears all things. That means no matter what's happening, He ain't giving up on you. He believes all things. That means no matter what you've done, He don't change His mind about you. He hopes all things. That means no matter what goes wrong, He's not giving up on His purpose in your life. He endures all things. He's with you thick and thin no matter what. He ain't going nowhere. And His love never ends. 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us so much, we also ought to live, love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete among us. Verse 13, this is how we know that we live in Him and He lives in us. He's given us His Spirit. And we've seen and we testify that the Father, he's not, that He has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they live in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God lives in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. Verse 18, there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears has not yet been made perfect in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God but hates their brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen can't love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And bless you for sneezing. Or gesundheit. I'm going to make 12 simple statements just from these verses. There's a lot there, isn't there? That's like a month of sermons. Just in that one big old chunk. So 12, 12 points. Um, You know what? I can't do it. I'm not going to write them all out. It's too much writing. 
You just write them down yourself. Thank you. Love comes from God as a miraculous gift, point number one. Verse 7, love comes from God as a miraculous gift. We talked a whole night about it. You don't make it happen. It's His to make happen. As you abide in Him, you bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Love comes from God. It's a miracle. It's a total miracle. Verse 7. Point 2. Love is a result of being born again. And love is a result of knowing God. As you know, with, as you know God, as you say your yes and His Spirit comes, and then as you walk with Him, the byproduct is fruit. That's point two. Love is the result of being born again and knowing God. That's, again, from also from verse seven. Am I talking too fast? Point three? Did I repeat it enough? Okay. Point three. If we don't love, we do not yet know God. Which means... What's the answer if I don't have enough love? I need to get to know God better. So the correct result when I realize I need more love is not shame on me. Right? Remember we talked about this with Peter? He realizes he's sinful and he knows he's in the presence of holiness and he says, get away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. What's the right answer? Come closer. I'm a sinful man. Right? Because we think, you, I, you know, I can't be in the presence of this holiness. We, we put the fig leaves, we run away, and we want to hide. But are fig leaves good compared to what the Father's going to give us to cover our shame? The righteousness of Jesus is far superior to our fig leaves. So instead of get away from me, I'm a sinful man, the answer is I've got to get closer to you and let your love absolutely deal with, pay for, uh, provide for, and transform. Which is why it says in 1 John earlier that when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to both cleanse us of our sin, to forgive the sin and cleanse us of the stain. So He deals with both the guilt and the stain. He deals with the relational setback and with the psychological weight of it, wipes it out. So if we don't love, we just don't know God well enough yet. Verse 8, point 4. Love doesn't, this is repetitious, because John's repetitious. Love doesn't come from us. It flows from God, through Jesus, to us. And then we give it back to God as our response. That was a long one, verse 10. Love doesn't come from us. It flows from God, through Jesus, to us, and then back to God as response. In fact, the whole Christian life is response. You tell me when we're ready for five. A few people looked, okay. Five, as we, verse 11 says, as we receive undeserved love from God, we learn to give away undeserved love to others. When did he love us, you guys? At our best? at our worst. And as that really comes home and sinks in, we start to love people who don't deserve it. We start to forgive people who ain't even apologized yet. They ain't even repented yet. They ain't even done sinning against us yet. They're 12 miles from apologizing. And we love and forgive them before they even come close to it. 
because that's how the Father is to us. Now, I didn't say you better get busy doing it. What I said is as we receive undeserved love from God, we learn to give away undeserved love to others. That's verse 11. That was five. Okay. I guess I'll just email these to you too in case you, uh, you know. From verse 12, I got this. Number six. Though God is invisible... Man, I love this one so much. Though God is invisible. Though God is invisible. He becomes visible. Among us. As we love each other. That's what it says. That's verse 12. At, though God is invisible. He becomes visible among us as we love each other. Dude. <laughs> Point seven. By the indwelling Spirit of Christ, we experientially know and practically daily rely on God's love for us. For us. I'll say it again. By the indwelling Spirit of Christ, we experientially know and practically rely on God's love for us. Is that too long? That's all the verses from 13 all the way to 16. I'm shortening them, actually. That's a big deal. It's like a super big deal. Do you take time to receive His love daily? You need to. If you're normal, you probably just get busy trying to earn his love every day. If you're normal. It's extremely important to sit in his presence and receive his love. Ah, oh, it sounds so simple. And it's really a challenge. Romans 5.5 5 confirms the same thing. Uh, it says that God has shed abroad or poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom, ha whom he has given us. And that word, shed abroad or poured out, it doesn't mean little droplets full. It doesn't mean a little bit. He's not poured a cup of love, just a little cup of love for the Holy Spirit. No, shed abroad means like poured to overflowing. This is an effusion. This is an overflow. This is a gushing, uh, you know, abundant... Paul's using strong language. It's so interesting to me. So to talk about what, what, is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it means to be overflowed, just overflowed, just completely overflowed with love. God's love for you. God's love for you. God's love for you. Specifically, precisely, and concretely, personally, you. Actually, you. That's probably enough on that one. <laughs> Point A, true spirituality is love. It's the second half of verse 16. True spirituality is love. Love is the deep. Love is the deep. Love is what's profound. Not insight, not knowledge. Love is what's impressive. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 is all about that. You can speak in tongues, but if you don't have love, the tongues mean nothing. You can prophesy with crazy accuracy, but if you don't have love, the prophecies mean nothing. You can be super generous. You can sell your home. You can sell everything. You can sell everything you own and give the, give the money to the poor. But if you don't love, it's all a waste. You can have zeal. You can have sacrifice. You can have knowledge. You can be theologically orthodox. But if you don't have love, it actually, all the other stuff, means nothing. 
true spirituality is love. Now, if you love and you have tongues, now the tongues matter. If you love and you prophesy, now the prophecy matters. If you love and you have give sacrificially, now the generosity matters. But what brings like authenticity, the smell and signature and weight of heaven to a thing is the love. That's why Mother Teresa said, I don't, I don't worry about doing great things for God. I worry about doing small things with great love. Actually, she said, we can do no great things for God, but only small things with great love. One of the most helpful things I learned from uh, Brother Lawrence was when he said, or was it Frank Laubach? One of those dudes. <laughs> uh, they said, um, don't, don't worry so much as whether all your actions are led by the Spirit. You can fall into a weird charismatic legalism about that. Second guessing and freaking out and feeling ashamed because maybe you heard God and you didn't, weren't sure and all that. That's nonsense. You're under grace. You're free from the law. Be also free from weird charismatic legalism. But offer whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or, or vacuum the, the carpet or discipline the kids or whatever it is that you're doing. Everything you do, whatever you do, word, deed, do it as an act of love to God. Dude, that helped me so much. That's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. Because I was trying to be led by the Spirit. That's one of the things God said to me one day. He reminded me of that, and he's like, Tim, you're doing it wrong. I said, doing what wrong? He said, you're trying to be led by the Spirit. I said, what's wrong with that? He said, you're falling into a, 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 a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're self-evaluating constantly as to whether this or that was the Spirit or just you or me. Or, you're under grace. Relax and just offer to me whatever you happen to be doing as love, as worship. And I said, that doesn't sound right to me, but it kind of sounds right. He's like, you know, you know, well, I think I know what I'm talking about here. And I'm like, yeah, but what about all these other scriptures? And he's like, I'm giving you the key to live out those scriptures. True spirituality is love. Okay, point nine. Love is the seal of God on our foreheads. This is from verse 17. In this world, we're like Jesus. Why? Love. Love is the seal of God on our foreheads that marks us out from the rest of the world. Dan Moeller, I heard him say, the mark of the beast is not a chip you get in your hand or whatever or a special credit card. The mark of the beast is the image of the beast in your nature. And you know what the seal of, of God is on, the, on those who belong to God? It's the, it's the nature of Jesus formed in their spirit, in their heart, in their character. It's this. It's love. I was like, that's an interesting thought, Dan. That kind of takes some of the fear and speculation out of your end time. Yeah, there is a mark of the beast. And yeah, there is a seal of God placed on the forehead of the saints. And what is that seal? In this world, we look like Jesus. Why? Love. Point 10. God's love strips us of shame and condemnation, bringing assurance and peace and boldness. That comes from verse 18. Perfect love casts out fear. God's love strips us of condemnation, 
bringing assurance and security and peace and boldness. Man, I got to go faster so we can get through get to discussions. Eleven. Receiving God's love is the true root of all of our love. This one's big, guys. Receiving, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Receiving God's love is the true root of all our love. And the final one, the twelfth observation I make on this big chunk of verses is we love God as much as, this one's the hard one, the person we love the least. That's based on verses 20 and 21. We love God as much as the person we love the least. Okay, discussion questions. Uh, where's this? How do you guys define love? How do you guys define love? Say it again. Obedience. So love to God is expressed as obedience, but is that how you so, define it? To some level, yeah. Part of it. It's a start. It's a start. Right. What else, guys? I think forgiveness, being forgiven. So forgiveness... That's, I would say forgiveness is one of the things love will do. Unconditional, Unconditional love. love uh, so give that to me in a sentence. Love has no conditions. Love forgives. Love obeys God. If we love God, we'll obey his commands. That's very much First John. And for, yeah. I'm still not hearing a definition of what it is. Not just what it does, what it is. I'm not being mean, I'm just saying. Love will endure pain. Does it always have to be painful, though? And then if you have a kid, part of you. it's like a part of you has been taken out of your body and placed in this person for the rest of your life. How you are doing will be directly connected, not completely, but in some way, really, to how they're doing. At least that's how I feel as a dad. Well, if you can be recognized by your walk, as simple as that, then yeah, right? That's... I still haven't heard a definition, but I'm hearing good descriptions. God is love. John Fried's been quiet. Stan's talking. Love is unconditional. Love is the essence of God, but I'm still hearing these as attributes. I'm very picky on this. Not, these are not definitions. These are attributes. So we're, we're, These are more thesaurus entries.
okay, so now we're, now we're sniffing our way toward what it is. That's really what we've been doing. We've kind of been coondogging this thing. We can smell that it's over here somewhere. Love gives you, love has nothing to do with earning. Maybe that's a good way to put it. This is harder than you thought, isn't it? Have you said anything yet, Tim? Would you like to offer any words? Trying to wake up. Love is trying to wake up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Affection. I like it. I like it. That's probably in my definition. I have my definition. Doesn't mean it's right. I deliberately didn't look at Webster's or a Bible dictionary or anything to get my definition because I'm interested in hearing what you think and what I think. Terry, anything? Affection and action, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Commitment. Okay, I think everyone has talked. Is that right? John. <laughs> this is a group project. You have to make a contribution or you'll fail the class. I'm kidding. You won't fail the class. Yeah, there's no real homework or grades. And the prize money is not real. Here's how I define love. You ready to hear my definition? Uh, too bad you can't have it. I'm just kidding. I'll give it to you. Uh, love is treasuring. Treasuring someone. Or valuing someone. Period. Now, I have qualifier, qualifiers. I have two qualifiers. Love is treasuring or valuing someone. And here's qualifier one. In a way that comes deeply from the heart. And here's qualifier number two. And is necessarily expressed outwardly in actions. And I feel really good about that definition. I worked hard on that definition. It's like the bulk of my, my prep time today was like, how do you define it? <laughs> Love is treasuring someone or valuing someone in a way that comes deeply from the heart and is necessarily expressed in outward action. Question two, how do you think the world defines love? Self. Yeah, romance and sex. And I, you didn't even say romance, so I'm giving it credit, the benefit of the doubt. Love is sex. Yeah, not, not in the physical, but making sure each of your needs are met. Kind of thing. Hmm, making um, sure each of your needs get met. Yeah, so it's a, um, it's like a transaction. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I love you as long as you love me. Yeah. As long as I fill your love tank, hopefully you'll keep filling mine. Yeah. When, that, when you stop, the, the, uh, the uh, contract is over. Yeah. 
conditional. How else does the world define love? You know how I think we use it in the world? Really liking a thing. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love that car. Oh, I love this ice cream. Oh, I love that cat. Oh, I love your hat. It's like, dude. I think we just use the word love too much. We, we, we use it a lot. We also use words like awesome and amazing a little bit differently than they, we probably should. We don't have another word other than love. You're amazing. Sentimental attachment. Is that a way the world uses the word love? Sentimental attachment. How about infatuation? I was in love, we say. No, you weren't in love. You were infatuated. How about number three? How does God prove his love for us? Come on, stop squeaking. That's a theta for theos, which is God. Oh, and then when I do this, a chi and a rho, that's for Christos, Christ. How does God prove his love for us? It was right in the verses we read tonight. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for, uh, for us. Like, so, so Paul and John, like they can't even process the word love without instantly going to Jesus, and they can't process Jesus without instantly going to the worst moment of his life. Somebody, I remember when I was studying New Testament theology, they said that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are actually passion narratives with long introductions. Passion narratives meaning the passion of the Christ, his, his suffering and death. And I was like, ouch. That's, that's, that's because that's the proof. That's the I love you of God. He doesn't say... I treasure you so much that I wrote you poetry. Now nah, he bleeds. He bleeds his poetry, his poetry. That's like... I remember the first time I watched Matthew, the NIV text of Matthew, they acted it out with the little video series. And I'm a brand new baby Christian. I don't know anything. I don't even know why Jesus died for me yet. I literally don't understand even that. I was saved and filled with the Spirit before I understood the gospel. It's not supposed to work that way, but it did for me. That's all out of order. The Lord just worked all out of order with me. <laughs> it's weird, right? Saved on drugs in the mountains, baptized in the Spirit before I even understood the gospel. The whole thing was out of order. So there I am sitting, and I'm watching Jesus on the cross, and they're nailing the spikes into his wrists. And... I just can't stop crying, and I don't know why. I could not, I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was crying. And, and I also didn't know why I was so high. 
I thought I was high. I thought I was on drugs because I was a habitual drug user and then met Jesus. Y'all, that wasn't, I wasn't high. It was the Holy Spirit. Here, I'd never realized. So can you see how confused I was? Why am I crying? I have no idea. And why am I high? I'm so confused right now. Do you know what it was? The love of God was being shed abroad in my heart. For you, Tim. For you. For you, Tim. For you. For you. For you. This how much I love you. That's how much I love you. That's how much I love you. That's how much I love you. That, that pain in your, when you cry so hard, your throat hurts and your chest is tight. I literally, I said, I look over at my buddy Darren. I said, why am I tripping? And he goes, I don't know, but me too. Both, we didn't know anything. We really needed discipling. <laughs> we didn't know. That's how God proves his love for us. Question four, do you believe that God looks exactly like Jesus? Or do you trust one member of the Trinity more than the others? Or less than the others? When we do prayer stuff with people, I have friends and they're like, I have a hard time with the Father, but I really like Jesus. And others are like, mm, I have a hard time with the Holy Spirit because I don't know why. And then I go, yeah, I know why. It's mommy issues. Usually is. It's not a fact. It's not a law. It's just an observation. But if you don't, if you don't see the Father as looking exactly like Jesus, then you don't see the Father correctly. If you don't see the Father as love, if you don't see the Holy Spirit as perfect love, if you don't see Jesus as perfect love, you don't see clearly yet. And that matters. That really matters. That's question four. Do you believe God looks exactly like Jesus or do you trust one member of the Trinity more or less than the others? I remember growing up at our church, we had this discussion and so many people said, well, the Father's just really not very approachable. I really enjoy relating to Jesus. I find he's more accessible to me. But oh, the Father, I just kind of, whoo, here comes. He's stomping into the room with a big old paddle, wanting to whack me. And then Jesus jumps in front of the paddle. No, Dad! He's under the blood. And I'm like, oh, guys, we need a gospel. Can we get a gospel up in here? These are church folks saying this crazy heresy. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. He's the exact representation of the Father's being, Hebrews 1.3. No one has even seen God, but God, His Son, the one and only, who is close to the Father's bosom, has made Him known. John 1. Question 5. Have you had any bad experiences being presented with a picture of God who is not love? Anyone, raise your hand, tell a story. Stan, Stan's hand went up, Joyce said, tell a story, and then he scratched his neck. <laughs> Have you had any bad experiences being presented with a God who was not love? I have. free to share. <laughs> you were Catholic, so come on. Ah. Well, that's what, that's what that, the whole thing where you just describe people. Um, 
from the Father. Like God was here, ready to handle it. Yeah. That's not biblical. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. Where was so? Where was the Father when Jesus was on the cross? Yeah. Why would He give a Son if He was if, yeah, if His wrath was going to Was Jesus on the cross uh, saving us from yeah by taking the anger of God, or is this the expression of the Father's love? That's the expression. See what I'm saying? And then I can hear my smart Calvinist friend saying, "It's both, moron." And then I will say, we'll, we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> I remember being threatened with hell if I won't love God. Heaven's gates, hell's flames. Come forward or else, turn or burn. And I was like, man, I really don't want to burn in hell. But I also don't think I can keep all these rules. It's quite a conundrum. So I went forward and cried at the altar and never got saved. Unless you count praying a prayer based out of fear to commit to being more rules-driven for a bit before I quit again. Unless you count that as getting saved. Which I don't. Was that confusing? Oh, th that, that depiction, right? Like, Hello? Who is it? It's Jesus. Uh, what? You need to let me in. Is this the big bad wolf or Jesus? Why should I let you in? Because of what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Evangelism. No! <laughs> Question six. Oh, no, no, no. Let me express this real quick. Ben Gibbard has a song. In We're almost done. Ben Gibbard has a song. I'll sing it. In Catholic school, as vicious as Roman rule, I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black. And I held my tongue as she told me, son, fear is the heart of love. So I never went back. Ouch. Yikes, Ben. God bless Ben in Jesus' name. You catch it? That's why he never went back. Fear is the heart of love going to threaten you into this kingdom. Shotgun weddings to Jesus. You know, you done sinned, you done messed up, you got that girl pregnant, now it's going to be getting a ring. <laughs> well, um, question six. Uh, the author of the book that we're using to supplement this class says that God's love shows us an example that love both gives and forgives without the person deserving the giving or apologizing to deserve the forgiving. Do you agree with this? Why or why not? I'm just going to move on and not give us time to answer that because we're over time. But it's a good question, isn't it? Love both gives and forgives without the person deserving the giving or apologizing to deserve the for, to, before they receive the forgiving. Mm. That's intense. Question seven, what keeps you from receiving God's love? I don't need you to answer out loud, but think about it. What keeps you from receiving God's love? And my encouragement is, if you think of something, the next time that you talk to God, 
tonight or tomorrow morning or whenever that is that you have a regular date with, with God, go ahead and repent and receive. Question eight, what keeps you from extending God's love to others? Yeah, I know, I know. But they, yeah, but they, but they shouldn't have. But that's no excuse that they, you don't understand what the, I know. Next time you go into prayer, choose to express words of forgiveness. Surrender that hurt to God. We can't have that stuff, Hank, we can't, we can't hold on to that stuff, guys. It'll block our love. Blocks the flow of love. Blocks the flow of grace. Am I saying it's easy? No. And I'm right there with you. Me too, guys. Me too. It hurts. But that's why we got to let it go. Because it hurts. Can't hold on to all that hurts. Too much to hold on to. You done for the night? Me too. Good. Good job, everybody. Father, seal it all in Jesus' name. Amen.